All right, I think we should get going. I am Joan Strassman, as some of you have figured out. I am at WashU. I am not a theoretician. I'm a person that smushes things and lets see <coughs> what they do. Um, I work in collaboration with Dave, my husband. Um, I've been a little puzzled here so far, because it, 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 they got us here saying it was going to be about multicellularity, and some of the talks don't even mention it, and so kind of leave us to make the connections. Uh, that might be okay, but I thought I would just sort of bring us back to the topic that I thought we were here to study, which is multicellularity. Um, so what I'd like you to do to start with is um, just think about what the challenges of multicellularity are. You guys are the world experts on this topic, or you wouldn't be here. So if you could just take a minute, maybe talk to your neighbors and figure out what you think the challenges of multicellularity are. <coughs> Write them down. What are they? It's going to be a lot more interesting when you see what I think they are if you've already thought about it. You can't talk to anyone because you're not seated at the table. <laughs> I think it's cooperation and Ah, uh, you're right. You're right. Okay. I haven't heard much about cooperation at all. The transition to multicellularity is way more than cooperation, just to be really provocative. Anyway. All right, so now I've got you thinking a little bit. Uh, what is multicellularity? And I'm just going to sort of rip through a bunch of these. And we can just spend the whole time on them, but then you won't hear about like a really cool organism. But whatever, I'm cool with that too. So <laughs> I would say a multicellular organism is made up of multiple cells. Okay, uh, what characterizes those cells? Well, they are not different. They're generally alike. If they're not currently alike, they arose from some sort of common form. How did it arise? I will say that it arose like this, and I will also say that some of the exceptions are really a lot of fun to study. But in general, I'm going to use Queller's framework, which he published in probably the most insightful book review I've ever read in 97. He divides uh, major transitions into those that are fraternal and those that are egalitarian. Where in fraternal ones, the different units are like and fungible. And in egalitarian ones, they're unlike and non-fungible. Thank you for the stick. I love sticks. Well, this with this um, group, it may be necessary. I know. <laughs> a bit longer one would be good. Yeah, you think? I, I'm pr I move pretty fast. But, uh, but I <laughs> actually love sticks because laser pointers give me migraines. So I've trained wash you, but yeah. <laughs> All right, so why did it e arise? Again, we can go to the major, to, to Dave's fraternal and egalitarian 
So just just for right clarification, more. so if you have uh, sort of an undifferentiated thing like a, certain kinds of cyanobacteria, would you not call that multicellular? I mean, even if there's three cells, there's a middle one with, that's different than the two edge cells. Is that something you call multicellular? Um, I mean, like an abaino or one where they just in a row? Well, anabina is kind of a bad one because they actually made a couple of different cell types. Yeah. So I'm thinking completely. Oh, you're thinking simple. Okay, just close minutes. Oscillatoria. Yeah. Uh, you, you know what? I think it's good to think about what is and what isn't. I'm not like the rule maker here. I'm just sort of throwing out some no, issues. No, I'm just trying to get an idea. Um, the cells, an egalit, so this would be an egalitarian major transition. It's not what I'd call multicellular, like the, you know, the classic example is the, the, you know, formation of a eukaryotic cell with a mitochondrion or a, or a plastid and a host cell. So, sorry, what about in the fraternal, does that include biofilms that have different genetic strains in the biofilm? So biofilms, it's really hard to think clearly about biofilms. And I'm going to talk about that next. But yes, if they have different genetics, if they have different species, they're certainly not a multicellular organism. And I would say they probably haven't gone through any kind of transition at all. They're just a community, and selection is not working on them together. But I'll, I'll get to that. So for a fraternal major transition, we have initial advantages. Really, there's two. The first most obvious one is size. You stick two cells together, and they're bigger. Uh, you can develop economies of scale. You can um, ultimately also get a division of labor. For the egalitarian one, you're combining two different functions. And I, I think there's tons of really fascinating uh, eukaryote um, bacteria, endosymbioses, that, have, that fall under this category. I think it, they're very understudied. They're really fascinating. It's Why is not, it called egalitarian? Because it's, well, this is Dave, uh, take, take, take off on the French Revolution, right? Egalité is the solitary option. Fraternité is because they are the same, related like brothers. Egalitarian because each of them has to get a direct payoff or you won't have selection favoring it. Is a libertarian alternative as well? Uh, <laughs> no doubt. Um, okay, so whenever you have things coming together, you have to uh, have some kind of way of controlling in the fraternal major transitions, kinship is generally what controls conflict. In the egalitarian ones, there has to be some other kind of fairness because each of them has to gain. Mutual independence can also select for that. This is just very big picture stuff. Um, a huge and really fascinating question from multicellularity is how the physiology works once independent cells have come together. How do they get
get nutrients around how do they they get you know respire how do they get rid of waste how do they depend defend how do they reproduce how do they develop and all of this um, so this is really important area um, just because I'm not talking about it so my organism is not particularly good for this, but I don't want to um, in any way make you think that I don't think this is important, because it is. Uh, all right, so now we can go on and just uh, say what's not a multicellular organism. Uh, nearly all biofilms are not multicellular organisms. You could they're generally made up of multiple species. They're not inherited together. They have no or few shared interests. There's no cooperative evolution here. It's a community. And this flies in the face of many very confused microbiologists who think that species die to help other species and things like that. And the literature is absolutely full of very confused thinking about biofilms. I guess I don't, I don't understand the bottom two, the no shared interests and the no cooperative evolution depends on what one kind of means by So uh, if you say that these different colors are different species, uh, the yellow species is not necessarily going to be helping this black species. There may be mutualisms in there, um, but in general in a biofilm it, it just doesn't have to be a cooperative thing. You can have single species biofilms and things like that, but even there, there's an awful lot more competition than cooperation. There should um, be no altruism between species. There could be some cooperation. Yeah, there, well, there could be, yeah, there could be mutualisms arise. People often talk about biofilms as if they are these completely cooperative things without ever in any way looking at it. I guess, I mean, I want to say, I mean, they may be mostly non-cooperative, but they interact in an enormous number of ways just by the number of chemicals in the environment. And if some of those interactions are favorable to both, then I guess, I, I, don't, I don't guess I don't understand what cooperative means other than some particular form of interaction. So uh, what, I'm, what I'm talking about, I, I go on on this on a, in a little more detail, okay. which may be helpful. Um, my basic point is that there is so much out there on biofilms that is just plain wrong that I'm going a little bit in the other direction saying there's no cooperation unless you look at it and you show this is a mutualism, this, this species, this individual, this lineage is producing something for that one and it is an evolved cooperative sort of thing. So what about something like Bacillus subtilis that forms these biofilms where they start to have differentiation and the hedging and cells that become spores and cells that uh, die basically or are cannibalized on to produce more spores or something like that? I mean, granted, I don't think they know if in nature there are multiple genotypes in one such biofilm, but, they, but as one genotype, they certainly do something that seems very... Okay, and that's great, and I would certainly call that a multicellular organism. So Kevin Foster has a nice paper, I don't know if you guys know this one, um, where, is this Pseudomonas aeruginosa? Is it? Uh, anyway, he thought that he was going to find increased, uh, uh, the sort of the extracellular matrix that 
that he would find an increased productivity of that in pure clones versus um, chimeric groups. Uh, and he actually found out the exact opposite. And the reason was that it turned out that rather than being a cooperative product, it was more competitive to get up in the nutrient flow and beat down the other guys. All right, uh, here's just a little bit more. I just had this sneaking suspicion that you guys would respond to my uh, dissing of biofilms right to start. I'm with the dissing of biofilms, but isn't the key issue uh, the extent to which selection can operate at this higher level? So in principle, I could imagine some biofilm communities where there was opportunity for selection to work at the higher level. Uh, per se, oh, I, I would be very curious to see such a study. All right, so let's just talk about something more, uh, more tangible to all of us. So my background is behavior. I like things that I can see. I like to, to be able to understand what's going on. Uh, so let's start with these, these are zebras and wildebeest for the physicists in the crowd. Um, and, and you can look at the interactions. And uh, this is, do you know Athena Atipas? This is her nursing her baby. Uh, we'll pretend they're clonal. They're not. And there's plenty of conflict in this interaction. But this is my stand-in for a cooperative interaction. Okay, their interests largely overlap. Here, on the other hand, is a different kind of within-species interaction. These two springbok are uh, fighting, and they're two males, and they're fighting. One wants a territory intimate. They're not helping each other. They're touching. They're very close. This is not a cooperative interaction. Okay, here's a between-species interaction of a herder and his alpaca. This is a cooperative between-species interaction. Um, we will let it stand in for a mutualism where both is benefiting. Well, up to a point when, when, when animals are slaughtered. <laughs> oh, so. Um, yes. So... These animals are largely taken for their fur. That's right. Yeah, no, no. I understand this particular example, but but like farm and, and herd, for example, for meat, etc. So yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's just like it's yeah, it's I'm just it's my stand-in for a mutualism. Okay, where both have to benefit. Um, as compared to this one, very close, very intimate relationship. The Lioness is going to benefit when she eats this Cape buffalo. They are going to actually exchange DNA in a really uh, uh, intimate sort of way. It is not a cooperative interaction, okay? So I've just shown you four different kinds of interactions. Um, there's lots more. There's, as you pointed out, there's lots of subtleties. The point is, no one would ever see this and say, wow, that buffalo is giving his life to the lionesses, isn't that nice? In microbes, half the time, we don't know which thing we're looking at. And we better figure it out, because evolution will act really differently 
according to which one it is. Imagine that the, the, the lioness would kill only sick buffaloes, then it would be, be an advantage. For example, a sick no. buffalo will not be no. able to... No, no, no. You are thinking of selection at the species level. There's nothing in it for a sick buffalo to die to a lion. No, and they don't go just for sick buffaloes. It could be an disease from the Exactly. We eliminate the disease, spread the disease in the buffalo population. So you, know, you have to measure this. You cannot just look at the picture and say... So selection doesn't really operate on buffalo at the level of the herd. It operates on the level of the individuals. By watching these guys, what you, you can determine some of these things. You do not see the buffalo, even the sick ones, walking into the jaws of the lions. They have not evolved to do that. Um, but that doesn't mean, I, I guess the question there is, could be is, cooperation, is cooperation something more than than benefiting each other? <laughs> and if they benefit each other, then I, I, I'll go back to the biofilm. When I have two species of bacteria, and if, either, if I'm in conditions where either would go extinct without the back, or that local community would go extinct without the other, or that they're more, the two are together and more stable to invasion by others than they would be individually, then <coughs> is that cooperation? Or, or, so ecological interactions that happen in communities and that favor community stability and those sorts of things are really quite different from individual interactions as to what goes on, what is selected for. Cooperation is not the same as community stability. But if I have a large, you know, a whole village which looks after a big herd of, of, of um, um, alpacas they were together, I guess I don't understand the intrinsic difference. Right, so that's because you haven't had a basic course in behavioral ecology <laughs> um, that goes through all of this stuff, just as I haven't had lots of different kinds of physics things, sure. and you know, it's, it's, it's pretty can important. Can you explain it in simple terms? Yeah. I think wow. I have. Let Dave explain well, one, one it. One distinction that can help is that there can be cooperative effects, which uh, you you could define as cooperation, they benefit each other, but we're interested in cooperative effects that revolve through natural selection, litter adaptations, and that's a much stronger criterion. So that may... Well, I mean, isn't everything that's there with biology evolved through natural selection? Not for that purpose. But then, then it's putting some purpose on things, which... <coughs> Metaphorically, that's what natural selection does. It's a metaphor, correct? But, Okay, but that means it evolved by natural selection, so therefore that's purpose. That's circular. I mean, I, right. So if I the if the buffalo were sick and it was to its benefit to die to help the herd, then you would find them walking into the jaws of lions. You never find that. So the idea that selection is operating at the level of the herd of buffalo, which is genetically diverse, traits I mean, I mean, this is sort of a, a very old argument in uh, behavior ecology. And or, or alternatively, yeah, antagonistic interactions can, can, can stimulate natural selection, like viruses and hosts or bacteria and people who use antibiotics, because at the end of the day, they, they evolve much fitter uh, organisms, like virus, viruses become more fit because of, of, of antibodies, etc. So, so what? So my point is that, that just natural selection could, could not mean cooperation, but, but it can be antagonistic in a sense, but still promoting natural selection. Well, so I can talk about virulence. There's a lot of different hypotheses for that, but that would get me really hopelessly off the track. Dave, you want to give it another try? 
I think it's a question of, uh, of language. I mean, we are trying to... It's not a question of language. Yeah, we are, we are blind, uh, blind anthropomorphic ideas, mm -hmm. whereas we could simply measure fitness versus a certain strategy, and that's all. Yeah. There is a certain rules, yeah. dynamical rules, and we measure what is the fitness associated with these dynamical rules, and we don't speak about cooperation or anything. In this case, if, if the buffalo is sick and the, the lioness kills the sick buffaloes, and it could be with bacteria, for example, then you know there is cooperation because it's 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 beneficial for for the other population. Well, and fitness is another loaded term here. Right. So if you say survival in the long term is uh, right is another story, right? So the question is: uh, is the lineage or related lineage is going to uh, is the probability of related lineage to survive in long term will increase or decrease as a as a function of uh, interactions like this. So it's not the matter of that poor buffalo dying, right? Um, so, the, you know, there was already this question of uh, um, killing uh, livestock, right? So uh, the question is, uh, who is it uh, right, that the livestock is maintained for 10,000 years thanks to uh, these interactions, right? So it's the matter of time scale. So but say maybe, there. Maybe we can uh, let you continue a little bit. Say there. Say I'll happens. just give it one more try. Uh, say there was a buffalo that had a gene that said, "If I'm sick, I will throw myself in the jaws of the lion so I don't uh, outcompete the other individuals in the herd." Such a gene would spread only under certain very specific conditions, which. Uh, are well explained by Hamilton's inclusive fitness. In a buffalo herd of genetically diverse individuals, such a gene would not spread. Suppose the rest of the herd will push the sick ones to the edge of the, uh, of the conclave, thus making it more vulnerable. That's not cooperation. That's competition. All right. So. Basically, there's some really fundamental issues that are important to understand, which the you know, people that, under, that work on behavior have really spent a lot of time understanding. A lot of it is completely ignored by the biofilm researchers. It's important to know what's going on in interactions and to not just assume you know when you don't, okay? And I see that as true at an even more profound level than I appreciated. All right, so. So, I'm sorry, can I ask for a definition of cooperation within one species before we go to different species? I, I think I'm just yeah, very confused right now. I do yeah, think there's right. something to be gained by that, just in terms of preventing us from talking past each other. Yeah. So, what is cooperation? Yeah. yeah. Or human um, adaptation or. <clears throat> You want to take a turn? Uh, if you're talking about cooperative adaptation, it would, it would be a trait which has evolved uh, for, for which the genes underlying it have spread because it produces the effects on others and perhaps they recognize them. So, what, why do you think something does to change the environment that affects others is in that category? Only if it preferentially benefits the gene, the genes that are causing that change in environment, as opposed to other genes in the population. And on what time scales am I measuring this? What's my 
I think usually fairly short, but it's kind of long scales are important, you have to consider them. You know what? I think it'd be really great if uh, we had a talk, say, from Dave, if Dave changed his whole talk and really talked about this, <laughs> this sort of stuff. Um, I'm going to move on and talk a little bit about DICT, but it just seems like it'd be really <coughs> useful to the group to have some of this uh, really basic stuff part of the laid problem out. Is, I mean, there's, there's just plain old cooperation, right, that might not be a benefit to anybody. There's cooperation that might be a benefit to self, but then there's cooperation that might be a benefit to the group. <coughs> That's probably leading to part of the confusion here. But if those past experiences then you guide, uh, I think it will be easier once you start talking about specific I'm not going to go into this stuff, and there's some pretty important stuff that would be really great if you guys understood, but whatever. But I, I guess one thing for clarification, why when you were talking about egalitarian versus fraternal interactions, and I've got that, that's great, I like that framework, did you start speaking about cooperative interactions between species? What, what's, what, what are you trying to tell me about that? I mean, I, I, I'm with you, I'm just trying to place it in the I was just trying to be a little complete and say that multicellularity is a fraternal major transition and to give you an idea of what that meant I just wanted to say this is the other kind is egalitarian so and just to contrast it I wasn't doing a lot with it all right so here's some points about multicellularity there's multiple cells, they are light, and, and you know, all of these can be challenged, and that's why they're challenges, not facts. Multiple cells, that one probably can't be challenged. Like cells, high relatedness within them, and probably uh, it would do to define relatedness. I'll just say at this point it is genes identical by descent. This is not, you know, humans 99% related over chimps, it's, it's identical by descent with respect to your competitors. There's advantages of size, division of labor, uh, conflict has to be controlled, and then there's all kinds of really cool and amazing things that happen once you have that. Cassandra. for number five, do we assume that there is a conflict that must be controlled? Where, where is the conflict coming from? Is it coming from for example, they're alike, but, but some will be more alike than others, or there's division of labor, but maybe not everyone's If they're genetically the identical, I would say there is no conflict. Mm -hmm. If they're not genetically identical, there is conflict. Um, sort of the whole basis to the multiple, the major transitions framework <laughs> is that conflict at lower levels has to be controlled in some way before you can have emergent properties at higher ones. Uh -huh. so. And that with genetic difference, you will have conflict inevitably. That's also part of, that's also built in, is that right? It, it may be controlled, um, but it's it's certainly interesting to look at, and it's certainly okay. what I'm going to be talking about. In so it's sort of part. a function of number three, maybe. The degree of relatedness might determine the degree of conflict that needs to be controlled. Is that the way it's not necessarily a linear function. Rela high relatedness will control conflict. Not but, linear, but some function. Yeah. Well, I, a queen honeybee's worst enemy is her sister who will sting her to death. So uh, there's more conflict. If you look at worker policing literature, 
there is less conflict in colonies with certain kinds of lower relatedness than in higher relatedness. So really, um, yes, it, you know, the, the simple thing is, yes, it's linear. The complicated thing is it depends on who you're competing with. So just please. That was an egalitarian major transition. So you could have cells that carry symbionts, but I'm not talking about cells that carry, I'm talking about host symbiont is not that is not a multi multicellular situation. That is an egalitarian. They're different. It's not what I, what is falls under multicellular. I mean, can I just back to Boris's question? So, um, for at least three of those, it seems very much depend on the time scale. So, I mean, in some point of view, we and chimps are far apart. You know, in large scale, long time evolution, we're very close. And so, the you know, success of primates, if one wants. And so, and also, the, what, what time scale the conflict is over, right? So, all of those seems to me there's a, there's a definite time scale which one has to talk about, and they can be completely different. So relatedness, we are not close. Relatedness is a different kind of thing, which Dave's going to talk about in that other talk he's going to give. <laughs> All right. So what's the best group of organism for studying multicellularity? Um, Sorry, just following up on that question. What about these ectosymbionts? So if it's an obligate, if it's something that becomes like a, like a new carrier, but there are two populations of, of host and an ectosymbiont that's like an obligate. If they're two totally different things, I would put them as an egalitarian major transition. They're interesting. They're cool. Um, our lab is completely moving to studying towards them. They're not the same thing as multicellular. But, but in the root sense of the term, they are multicellular. Right? So, so you can call it multicellular, but the distinction you're making is that there's this class of things we normally call multicellular that are fraternal and have these certain characteristics. Okay. Oh, I'm so delighted with all this discussion. All right, so to my mind, this is the best group to study if you are really interested in the exact mechanisms of how multicellularity has evolved to make bigger organisms out of smaller. There's so many different steps, so many different species, it, and it has the crucial simplification that it is based on uh, clonality. So you're not mixing up really cool adaptations to multicellularity with within organism conflicts. That's a great system if that's your question. If your questions have to do with conflict and the path not taken, the no single cell bottleneck, uh, the dictyostelids are a great system, and that's what I work on. Um, I'm not trying to be complete here, so those of you who are feeling left out, I'm sure there's lots of other organisms that are great for these kinds of studies, um, but just wanted to make those two contrasts for two kinds of issues. All right. So this is what I work on. This is a social amoeba. It's Dictyostelium discoidium is the species that I usually work on. 
This is the social stage of it. These are fruiting bodies with stalks of dead cells and uh, holding spores up on the top. I spent 30 years studying social wasps in last place I worked on them was in Tuscany and I gave it up to study these guys so that tells you two things. One is these must be pretty amazing and I must be pretty stupid. Um, so now I'm going to try to spend quite a bit of time describing what, what these things are because they're, they're often misunderstood. They're in the amoebozoa. This is a eukaryote. They have uh, mitochondria, nuclei, all those good eukaryote things. They are sister to the epistaconths, which is animals plus fungi. So this is where they are. This is a big group. Um, the dictyostelids are as a group as ancient as animals. Um, yeah. And with phylogenomics, the position of amoebozoa hasn't changed with respect to epistocons in the last 10 years? I'm not sort of up on it. It's a good spot. It's, it's really rock solid. There have been you know, lots of, uh, yeah, you mean because I had Sandy's old paper up there. No, it's, it's, it's good. Well, there are some questions about how the whole thing is rooted, I think, which might cause things around. But they appear system to epistocons still. All right, so I'm going to walk you through the life cycle um, and piece by piece. These are amoebae. They eat bacteria. They're, they're dictyostelid amoebae. They are found in the soil everywhere. Uh, Discoidium is found in the eastern U.S sort of a little west of the Mississippi and east, and then also in Eastern Asia. There's some in India. They go down into the, the New World tropics. Um, they, they eat bacteria by phagocytosis, um, so they engulf it. So it's a good model for certain kinds of, uh, of uh, diseases. When they starve, they aggregate together. They aggregate two cyclic AMP, which they are only sensitive to under uh, certain conditions with other, other uh, small molecules. They form a mound, which is then called a finger. Then they form a slug, which is this little thing that crawls around, looks like an animal, but it's not. And then a stage called the Mexican hat, and then ultimately the fruiting body in which about 20% of the cells die. The others flow to the top. They're hardy spores, which then can be dispersed to the next generation. Um, now this was first really developed as, so this species was discovered by uh, Kenneth Raper, who's also the guy that, uh, he didn't discover penicillin, but he's the one that figured out the culture of it to ramp it up to actually save lives. Um, in, the, in the 30s? In the 30s, I think. Anyway, uh, this was adopted first as a model for development because it's basically got relatively few tissue types. It's development with no change or little change in cell number during the process. 
Um, it's now a model for a lot of other cell and molecular biology <coughs> processes. So there's a whole community, annual meeting, tons of people that just know a ton about this thing that did not work on it from an evolutionary point so of view. So how many cells uh, for form an aggregate? So, um, an aggregate, Owen would say two million is the maximum. It's, it's in, in nature, under, you know, it could be a thousand to a hundred thousand, it could be more, it's numbers like that. Is there a mixture of strains in the aggregate? Um, you're getting ahead of yourself. <laughs> that is obviously a good question. And is there differentiation in the slug stage? The ones near the edge that are wiggling around more? Or? So the slug, the front of the slug is what becomes stock, and the rear of the slug becomes spore. There's slug cells that are dropped out in the rear also. Let me show you a few more pictures. Just to back up for a second, Joan, when you're talking about this part of the life cycle, those are Asexually produce spores. Yeah, I'll They're get to haploid. sex. They're haploid, yes, I should have said. Wait, that. The, the back end of the slug cells are dropped off, and the, but the back end is the ones that would look more like it becomes spores. So there's a trade off right there. As they crawl, some fall out the back. There's actually a sort of innate immune system that mops up stuff through the cell. Anyway, yeah. So. This is a tip releasing cyclic AMP. These are individual cells being attracted to the cyclic AMP. They also chain this kind of stuff. There's physicists that work on exactly how this works. And they're going towards it. Okay. So this is sort of the first stage of aggregation. Now, they're only sensitive to cyclic AMP, as I said, under certain conditions. Is there fusion, cell fusion during this process at all? They don't lose cell membranes, so they adhere, and there's a lot known about the um, genes involved in that. We've actually worked on them a fair amount. Okay, so this has got 2% of the cells stained. Um, it's crawling along. You can see a sort of spiral movement. Uh, so you can see there's many thousands of cells in there. Then the final thing, again, this is speeded up. There's a, there's a great, uh, if you all want to become dictiologists, there's a, uh, there's DictiBase, which is a site which has all these videos. It ha there's a stock center, you can get clones. There's a whole bunch of uh, genome stuff available on Dicti. So how long is this? It's little. It's, it's a millimeter, maybe two. The wild clones that we work on, so the lab people have uh, ruined a clone so that it'll live in the lab. Um, and they're tiny and they make nice little plaques and things and they're very, they'll, they'll eat azenically. The wild clones are much more unruly. How, how much time does it relax to, to form this? So you're moving in, in real time, how long does it take? Oh, this process would take a few hours. If you, if you plate down cells with bacteria, um, 
and then you want them to eat all the bacteria and starve and everything. The, the whole thing can happen in three days or, or fewer. Go if on. you chop a tiny bit off the top, the whole thing collapses. Huh? If you chop a tiny bit off the top, it collapses. Off the top of the, st of yeah, the, the fruity the little, body? If you chop, I think, part of the bit above the, the spores are going to be... It depends on when you do it. Yeah. You say that the lab strain will eat azinically. You mean they'll eat dead bacteria? No, they will eat a uh, nutrient broth. Yeah, they will pinocytose broth. So anyway, this looks like an animal, but it's not because it's formed from aggregation. So we like to think of it as sort of the path not taken. Um, and there's all sorts of directions you can go with that. It's as old as animals, but its forms aren't nearly so interesting. Yes? So the natural ecology is uh, uh, roughly what? So suppose uh, the spore dis uh, dispresses, so how far do they travel? I would, so I they're, they're they are not wind dispersed. They are sticky. They are picked up by animals. So I mean, Owen has, has done tons of field work on this. They're picked up fast. You find them in poop. You, you uh, find them in salamander dung. They're, and, they're moved uh, around. And so suppose the spore sort of disperses, gets far away, and colonizes a new territory. Uh, is it going to produce, uh, the, by the time it's starved, and is it going to produce uh, you know, one fruiting body or a million fruiting bodies? What, Depends on what kind of food they get to. So, um, really, it depends, you know. And it could be that they don't starve until, except once a year, you know. I mean, these are natural history details that we don't know. Um, so I would. Within, within the range of a million, I suppose gave you a range of a million. <laughs> How could you say? Well, so there was there was one time I took three. Fresh undergrads, so I was in Texas, I went through a barbed wire fence with the students into a cattle pasture, I had them doing a, a transect, taking a straw, so about a fifth of a gram every uh, meter, I was collecting from poop, it was sort of the classic scene with the nervous undergrads who know damn well you don't cross fence lines in Texas. Um, and there were cattle far away. And then at one point, it was kind of like being on a Western with the cattle started stampeding towards us. Students are freaking out. I said, you're not done with your transect. So we're not leaving. I figured they were going to this little barn and thought we were going to feed them. And I was right. Anyway, so then Owen, um, I, I do the fun field work. So then Owen takes these things to figure out what kind of clones we've got. Turns out. The whole pasture was one clone, and there were, I mean, those fruiting, those plates were covered. I mean, you want to give a, give us a number? Ten to well, so the what? The question was how many fruiting bodies do you get in a place? And this, we didn't see fruiting bodies there, but you know, it's very high density of cells. But if you look on, say, a, a single dung pellet from a deer, right? it's about this big, very very small. You get a hundred fruiting bodies. Okay. Like, oh, so that, that's, uh, well, I'm getting uh, to the clonal. Okay. So the, the level of CFP uh, emission, is there kind of 
differentiation at this level so that some of them emit uh, starving cells and some of them do not, or they emit about the same amount? Or uh, there's, initi there's initiator cells, and actually we've done work on this. There's also been uh, knockout work on it. Mm -hmm. What's really cool is the first one to start releasing the cyclic AMP ends up in the spores, which really puzzled me. Cassandra. Um, it's sort of related to this. I'm really interested in the division of labor in these cells when they come together. And I know that different species of, of amoebozoa make fruiting bodies with different numbers of cells. Do you know, is it always the same proportion of cells that become spores independently of how many form the aggregate? My, in, in D. discoidium, a larger group will put fewer, a, lot, a smaller proportion into stock. Anyway, um, but I'm not done here. So this is the, the life cycle I told you. Remember they're haploid, they're haploid here. This is the vegetative cycle where they just do what amoebae do and divide by binary fission. Remember they're eukaryotes. Um, they could be in this 99.9% .9 of the time. We don't really know. We do know that they are in this often enough that you can select for, you can do selection experiments and show it's important. Now I'm going to tell you about sex, because their sexual story is the coolest. Um, I'll just give you a little vivid analogy and then I'll walk you through it. Imagine. Sorry, I just want to focus on this question. So if you have a lot of cells, rather than making several different stalks, they would make just one? It doesn't matter how many cells you start with, they always make just no, one? No, no. I mean, a plate, a plate of them will make lots. Exactly what the aggregation territories are, what that impacts, is another area. Um, in, in other species, and some in this, we found that if there's more genetic diversity, they'll make more fruiting bodies. But there's some genetically controlled number of, of cells yeah, that make an aggregate. And there are, people know a little bit about mutations in genes. You can make them make a fruiting body with too many or too few. And then spore success is not great. Um, but I, I, what I don't know is the sort of proportion that goes Yeah, so this actually was work done by our postdoc um, back in her previous life as a molecular biologist. and. Um, <coughs> They're really, I, we haven't looked at those genes in, in nature and, and the variability in nature. That's pretty much knockout type studies. All right, sex. This is how it works. Imagine an orgy where everyone is invited. It's gone viral, you know, on Meetup and everything. The first people that arrive copulate. Everyone else that arrives after that is eaten by those two copulating individuals who then have a bajillion babies. So that's basically what sex is like in Dicti. Now I'll walk you through it. So there's mating types. There's three mating types in D. discoidium. Uh, the genes are known. We've been doing sex ratio studies. They seem more or less in equal frequencies. They fuse. Some of them actually are homothallic which means they'll fuse with their own type. Um, so here the two haploid cells fuse, forming a diploid zygote, which again, the attractant is again cyclic AMP, but they tend to go in the sexual cycle rather than the social one under conditions of dark and either more or less 
calcium or magnesium or you know one of those things. Anyway, uh, so they fuse. They're then highly attractive, attracting all the other cells in the area coming in. Those cells are then started to be consumed by the zygote. They themselves build a seraglio around themselves and the zygote can't eat them too fast because it has to leave them time to build this wall. So they, they build their little, their little enclosure in which they die, consumed by the middle ones, which then forms a macrocyst, giant cell. They have uh, sexual recombination, meiosis. So um, what does it mean, die? It means that they're DNA They're eaten. But the DNA is, is broken down? Is of it? course, they're eaten. It's so just there's like, no inc incorporation of the DNA? No, no it's, these are eukaryotes, no. Um, they, they eat them. Okay. Uh, the cell walls are intact so they can make a, a macrocyst out of the walls? So the, this is the original cell. It eats the others slowly. They secrete something. They secrete a polysaccharide to make this outer wall. Um, and then so, so it's just these two original ones that fused, and then they have, you know, normal recombination, and then they hatch out thousands of recombinant amoebae. Um, so this is a, you know, fairly unusual sexual process. So then these, these hatching out amoebae are, are haploid again. Um, so one of the big challenges of Dicti is that we can get to this point easily in the lab. Hatching out recombinant amoebae is really tough, um, and it really hasn't been done that much. We've done studies of recombination in the wild, and they're, they're having sex all the time like rabbits, according to their recombination rates. So, so this, these are the three cycles of Dicti, uh, the three life cycles. So how does one check uh, that there is no um, uh, recombination uh, um, with uh, these additional haploids? They eat them. They eat them. They phagocytose them. This is totally clearly seen. But they uh, eat them. They 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 consume the DNA. It's it's broken it's broken down. Do they excrete them after that? Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, they, they, you mean when you eat something, you have to poop something? Yeah, I don't know. So, <coughs> I had imagined people have looked uh, for any evidence of homologous recombination with, uh, with uh, those other things. So there is, uh, does it bother you that they just eat those guys? That's what I'm no, saying. No, I just want to know if uh, there is yeah. evidence or there's an assumption no. that they eat and no, they carry it. Technically, you'd have to throw in some additional strains. So if you've got only two strains there, the two cells that, that produce the yeah, that's what I'm zygote are the same genetic <laughs> That's exactly what I'm asking. So <laughs> I don't think you could look at it that way, right? Because, because they're genetically identical, you couldn't detect No, but either. what you can look at is, and they have looked at... Very fluorescent reporter into 
otherwise clonal background and see if I'm transferring it into a... Yeah, so that's, I mean, they've looked a lot to show that these guys are just, are eaten, you know. I mean, they're phagocytose, they're, they're eaten, they've, there's this, these are, you know, cell biologists. Can I help the up in the top part? So, if I'm, so they're, they're secreting the, the, the tractant, coming together, the first two to get their um, fuse. And then they just keep emitting the same attractant, so the other ones... Even more. Even more. Even so more. the other ones have no way to differentiate whether they're going towards something they're going to get eaten by or, uh, or, or another one that they can... So we don't know, and actually one of the things we're pretty interested in is, 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 uh, is a model for a different kind of model for anisogamy. What happens... Uh, you know, which, which of these two cell types are likely to be in the population that are being eaten. And what stops them fusing the other ones that get there? It's just how it is. So there must be some other, some other signal that stops them fusing, which is... Which yeah, just there. like, you know, when, when you have two sperms attacking a human egg, you know, one, one gets in, the other doesn't. It's just... Or it could be there. they fuse with each other. I guess that's what if like you have two that fuse, then a bunch of others are all coming towards it. Right. And why can't two pairs of these fuse with each other? So there's some other. Yeah, but that's th a there are no males question. and females in, in, yeah. in this population, right? So so yeah, there's mating types. There's three mating types. Uh, there's no anisogamy. Is that what you're asking? Yes. No, there's they're 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 not anisogamous. The sexual cycle is driven also by stress, like uh, the uh, social cycle. Um, they only go through it also when they're starving. Yeah. And the attraction is for all three sexes? Once the all three can do it in, in, in pairs of two. They're, they're right. But once that happens, the attractant acts on all three of the uh, yeah. sexes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have, have you tried putting two fused cells together? They don't go together, but that would be technically... Them one next to the other. I don't know the details of all the stuff that has been done on that. The fact that both cycles use cyclic AMP suggests to me that maybe one or the other response was co-opted for the other cycle. Exactly. Do you have a, a feel for which came first? No. Okay. So you think other dictyostelids, some other dictyostelids don't use cyclic AMP for aggregation, but I don't know about the sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's other. There's other chemoattractants. There's glorin. There's folate. There's. There's lots of other ones. One, one quick genetic question. So after meiosis, is, is it known whether all four meiotic bodies give rise to kids, or is it just one or two meiosis? So all those amoebae coming out, or whatever those things are coming out, are they all one clone at that point? Oh, out here? Yeah. Yeah, no, multiple. multiple so they must, that must mean that there's all four meiotic bodies. Are. I think that's supposed to be the case, but I think yeah. It's poorly studied in Nidoscoidium a little bit more in some other species, but it's fair to say it's poorly studied in all species. But collapse train uh, does the whole thing uh, like the wild type, or some of it was bred out of it? Well, they don't really study. I mean, the lab strain would just be one sex. It is developed from NC4, which is one of the three sexes. It is not homothallic, so it couldn't do it by itself. It can do it with VC. What? NC4 does it with V. Something. 
anyway. All right. Should we just quit? Because I'm at the beginning of my talk. All right. So this is not going to be a mathy talk. I am not going to solve or even bring up all of the issues that some people have with Hamilton's rule. I am going to use it as a structure for talking about fitness benefits, costs, and relatedness in the Dicty system. This is Owen's picture. I stole it. I liked it. Um, so basically, the benefits have to do with dispersal by spores. The cost comes to the actor if you end up in the stock. You're dead. So uh, it's, it's like a mini little wasp colony where there's workers and there's reproductives, only the whole thing happens in a petri plate really fast, even if not in Tuscany. And then there's relatedness of these guys to those. So there's all these kinds of things that make it a really rich social system. Um, I think you've figured out from the questions so far, I am not a cell biologist. I am not a total expert on mechanisms, but we went to this system because we can get at mechanisms. We've got 20 sequenced clones. If we find a gene important that we're interested in, we can look at it, how it's evolved. So it's really been a wonderful system. I'm just now going to quickly tell you a little bit of background stuff. As far as benefits that we found, it uh, lifts the cells above the soil, which facilitate dispersal. Um, the social stage, the slugs, can move much farther than an individual amoeba could move. Um, as they crawl, they drop off cells behind, which are uh, able to use them so it can seed new resources. The spores made from this multicellular process seem to be hardier than cells made like microcysts just by themselves, although this particular species and this whole lineage does not make microcysts, but those that do, that's true for it. The, the protrusion at the, uh, on, on the tip of the spore pod is yet another cell type? What, what is its function? There's lots of different cell types. That is too detailed of a question for me. That's just the end of the stalk. They flow up the stalk and then spill out. So if it's wet, this whole thing will just droop down. But is it's it just a, like a nozzle that shoots them out? Or uh, what is the function? It's the, it's the end of it. There's, if, if, if I had way more detailed pictures, you would be able to ask me 35 questions about specific structures, none of which I would have answers for. Just asking one. I know, I'm just telling you, you're asking the one because you see it. I'm just telling you, there's lots more you would be asking if you could see it. Okay, so fitness stocks, costs, they die in the stock. Then at the social level, if there's chimeras, there's conflict. The uh, chimeric slugs migrate less far and make shorter stocks. So this is good, it means it's a social system of possible interest. So, you know, there's, a, there's a pretty minor right there that's like uh, growing at intermediate there. Yeah, so that's what it looks like when it's yeah. not fully formed yet. So it's kind of going up. Yeah, Owen oh, took all these pictures. Two, two. All right, since you guys have been so quiet, <laughs> I would like you to just speculate 
This is a question you've already asked on what relatedness is in wild fruiting bodies. So just, just think for yourself with an answer, okay? Do you have an answer? You guys are fast. You mean this, so if one, if I, if I just ask what the question might mean. So if I take all of the, the particularly in one area, and I can measure an average relatedness between them, and I want to compare the relatedness in a fruiting body to what that is. is that right. Well, yes, you want to take the back, background relatedness would be in, in the whole area. That's roughly what relatedness is, how similar right. are these right. guys compared to the population. So, so how similar, uh, what is the, the, the spread of genetic differences in the area? So the question is, in a given fruiting body, what is relatedness? Think of it as identical by descent. Are they moms and daughters? I don't understand, they... but if, if I look in the area, I have some, there's, there's some range of the, the variability in the, um, in the, in the DNA. Right. Which is typically, which is how big is fractions of a percent or a few percent or, or one in 10,000. So say in a, in a room this size you have a couple hundred different clones. Yeah. And the question would be how many clones in a fruit body? And I want to know how far apart the clones are. Well, that's... Okay, so let me tell you this. There are, the DNA, there are, the genome size is about 34. If the question you are asking is how much total variability in the genome there is, uh, you know, why? Why are you even asking that? If I sample two at random and I look at the, gen the, dif the genetic difference between them, right? Okay, and we have some ballpark identity mutation rate, one has some idea of how long they've separated in the past. Right. right. This question of relatedness is presumably also a question of how long do they separate in the past. Right. And so I wanted to get an understanding of is it that the ones in the whole area are all tenth cousins and the answer is siblings and first cousins, or is it that the ones away... Just give me your cousins. answer. Just give me your answer. How many think it's between 0 and 0.25? What's the unit? I'm it's relatedness. Well, one is, one it's one is it's between zero and one. One is clonal. Zero is non-clonal. But there's an issue here be, between identity and state identity by descent. Is that what is partly relatedness? Are you averaging across the whole thing? Is that the question? But relate half means siblings, quarter means first cousins, eighth means. In a given fruiting body, I've told you that they aggregate in nature. I've told you they didn't go through a single cell stage. I've said there's conflict. I've said that if they're strictly clonal, there won't be conflict. Um, the, the way the definition of relatedness, of a quantitative number, what is the definition? Okay, this is the definition of relatedness. The denominator is the gene, Dave, you put it on the board. What is it? It's, it's the probability that this, that this allele in your partner is the same as you. So that can take basically a zero or a one. It's either the same or it's different because they're haploid. The denominator is the frequency of that allele in the immediate population. It's basically how similar you are to your partners above and beyond the population of the world. So, so the that's way that... That's why I'm asking the question. Yeah. What are the so, so you're trying to answer the question by asking it, but right. just get the answer. Right. And we'll within a bulk, I'll go with a factor of a million. Again, did they separate a million generations ago, the ones they buy, or did they separate the border uh, one generation ago, typically? 
There's a lot of clonal diversity at the microscope. Like, I mean, there's lots of different clones that are not related at all. They're not related they're at all. The they're all the same zero relatedness. They're not related by descent on what time scale? You know what? I don't think anyone else is really very uh, gripped by your problem. Um, so, well, and I'm just gonna move on. You know, all of us here think on different on different scales, on different time scales, right. on different physical scales, at different levels of the complexity of biology. And so, I think, but my take on what Daniel is asking is just to try and to try and understand what you're talking about within the framework of the world that he <coughs> deals in. And I, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing to look at. It may not be an angle that that you take in your studies, which is which is great. But I think there's no, it is. It, we do look at relatedness. We look at relatedness. I think in a sense he's on the right track because you're saying what is relatedness and you're coming back and saying in a different form what is relatedness. Right. <laughs> so I think right. Really you're trying to translate language. That's right. Language. Language. So I think giving the answer so much probably time to mean very different things on different scales. So we just understand the translation. Okay, so. Excuse me, but actually I think it would be interesting to establish a relation between these different scales because I right. think a lot of the discussion. Has been actually that issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are people here thinking at a, micro, at a microscopic scale, and I think Joanne is thinking at a macroscopic scale. Absolutely. Except for I'm thinking at a genetic. So, so the way that we measure relatedness is um, we don't take the whole genome. We take microsatellite loci, which are highly variable in simple ways, in that they vary in the number of repeats. So, say. You take 10 loci, and, and each of them has 10 different um, alleles in the population. You can then get a very precise measure of how alike two are. We have done transects, and this is not stuff I'd planned to talk about. We've done transects in nature where we've collected a fifth of a gram samples. We've looked at, we've genotyped them for different microsatellite loci. And we we measure the relatedness, and it's you know it's it's as I said, it's 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 what the gene in yourself minus the gene in your partner. Population. I do it with P's, but all right, you do it, Dave. Okay, I mean I think that measure I understand. I just was trying to get a ballpark of the range of it and the time. Yeah, so maybe we can get this. Know, offline afterwards, but it is a, is a key question, right? And what Daniel is asking is, uh, now, how many generations it takes to change your definition of relation, uh, relatedness defined in terms of microsatellite by, let's say, 10%, right? And it's a very, very interesting and important number. So what I'm saying is, if you take the people in this room, of which there's mostly boys, as usual, um, and you say, how related are the people in this room? Are, is there any relatedness here? You would not then ask, how many generations separate you two? This is exactly what we yeah. No, well, what I would Wait, say... Cousins is some relatedness, 23rd cousins is another relatedness, right? Okay, but what, what you would calculate is you would calculate the genetic diversity in the room, and then you would, you know, you don't have to 
put a coalescence on it. There are various ways of doing it. Right? Okay, but, but yeah. This is a very fundamental question. Okay, so, but it's what I'm asking. Given that there's variation in the population, <laughs> what do you think it is in the fruiting bodies? And you are, you know, here I'm telling you, you would, if you, you know, Owen already said this, so you should have known the answer. Um, so the answer is that basically the fruiting body is much less I'm just a, I'm just leading up to showing you how they achieve high relatedness. That's all. I'm just saying it's an empirical observation made by Owen that relatedness within fruiting bodies is very high. What this means is if you take a piece of soil, a fifth of a gram of soil, you plate it out clonally, you see what the genotypes are in there, and then you compare that to what's found So finish your, your sentence and you compare it to what's found in the population. Within a if you compare what's found in the fruiting in the clones you've sampled to what's found in a given fruiting body, you will find that they are highly related. So presumably this means there's something going on that's putting closer relatives in fruiting bodies. And I was gonna tell you about that, but you know. It's still a little bit of a mystery to me because, uh, and we're all asking sort of very related questions. It, it's also a matter of uh, spatial scale. So if I think of formation of uh, you know, fruiting body by aggregation through cyclic AMP, diffusion, blah, 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 I am imagining uh, some process happening on the length scale of. Uh, 100 microns, uh, millimeters, you know, please tell me what uh, characteristic scale uh, defining, uh, so associated with the stalk is, right? So we're going to start to have a dish and have many stalks, and uh, what area of the dish is the stalk draining, right? Is it just the stalk spacing, for example, which would be the simplest models? For example, right? So, and we, we were, I'm completely ignorant. So, so what I said, what I said, or it could be half a, half a millimeter, and I, I just want to know, right? And the, depending on what that scale is, uh, we have to compare genetic diversity on that scale. Right. So, so did I say a fifth of a gram? Did I not I say a fifth of a gram? I took. If you the maximum aggregation territory is three millimeters. Three millimeters. Three millimeters. Okay, that's very helpful. Then. But this is me this relatedness is measured. It's you know how similar are you to the other spores in your fruiting body relative in this study to roughly a 50 meter transect, the kinds of genotypes you find across that. Yeah. And above that level, above 50 meters, you don't see a lot of population structure. You know, Texas isn't that different from Virginia, for example. Okay. And don't forget that relative to Owen's talk the other day on the wiki, you can read Owen's talk, and probably there's some references there that. Whereas some of this quantitation is done, so that might be helpful also. Okay, thank you. 
So isn't it surprising that, um, given what you were telling us before with regard to social framework within which you present that relatedness is not one? Um, it's since it forms from aggregation um, rather than through a single cell bottleneck, um, it's not one. And that's, if it were one, we'd still be studying wasps. So, it wouldn't so, be interesting. So it's the path not taken. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So would it be possible, and here's just, you know, is it possible to throw away the social evolution framework from this organism for a moment? And could you have presented it to us using, let's say, uh, language from ecology or, or a different framework? I'm not, I'm simply asking, uh, uh, when you start looking at organisms in, this, in the microbial world, eukaryotic or prokaryotic, um, that are fuzzy with regard to, to Darwinian individuality, I'm always curious about the possibility that we may have, <laughs> there may be alternate explanations out there. I mean, could it be, for example, this is all everybody for himself, herself, um, that there are a multiplicity of different types around? It's, I mean, I could go on, but do you think there's any possibility that, that there may be a more appropriate explanatory framework? So if, I mean, we've thought about, well, what if it's all exploitation? What if there's not really adaptations to the social stage? And, you know, we have done studies that show there are, um, I, you know, this is not a fuzzy organism. It's a eukaryote. It has clear boundaries. It's not leaking DNA all over the place. Well, they're chimeras at the select stage, so, you know, the heritability is a little bit... Yeah, so when... No, that's not heritability. That's well, the groups that form at one point in time are. Yeah, so it's a group, and and I think the the, you know, it's a group that has costs and benefits, and I think that, you know, you can wear the multicellular hat, or you can wear the this is a social group with competition among the individuals, and. Um, we looked at we look at it in both ways. You want to say something to this? Uh, yes, if somebody has a better framework, I'd be glad to hear it, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, and in particular with respect to the stock formation, it's hard to think of a different explanation. This is a complex structure that involves a lot of genes and a lot of kind of physiological interactions to make, and, and cells are dying in order to do this, and it's hard to come up with a different kind of explanation. Could you say that the relatedness in the stalk is different than the relatedness in the, in the fruiting body? That was in the earlier slide? No. It's the same? Um, it's, if you measure the relatedness in slugs and the relatedness in spores, they're not the same. It's tough to get the DNA out of the stalks. And even when you do, you always worry that you've contaminated it. If I just put normally about this 0.86, I mean, that's roughly equivalent to with people mating with someone from the same country, if you're in a big country. No, no. Mating no. with your brother also. So how many different uh, genotypes would we expect to find 
for relating this point eight six in the same. So this is Owen's work. I'll let him talk about it. Usually you have one genotype in the fruiting body, and then occasionally you have two or three, and then every once in a while four. But uh, yeah, okay. not one genotype defined from the microsatellite. Yeah, so variable microsatellite loci, and that particular study I was using three, and they each had like 12 alleles, so the chance of sharing, so, so if you look at uh, different clones, they'll share, they'll have different alleles at this locus usually, and so the chance of sharing all three is very low unless you're the same clone, okay? And so usually within the fruiting body, you find just one clonal genotype, and they're all, all the same. And then occasionally in the free body you'll find different clonal genotypes. But they've only been sequenced at the microsatellites. Right. Yeah. So they presume they, they can still have enormous number of genetic differences because that's only a very small part of the genome. They, they could. But that has that? nothing to do with relatedness. Well, what's, the, what's the rate of evolution of the microsatellites? Mm -hmm. So well, it's really high mutation rates, like 10 to the minus 7th or so in the species, and they're probably not selected much, but... Um, we just normally... We just tend to cite, so it's 10... We so just so think of it... Be exactly the same, they can be 100,000 generations apart, easily. Think of it like this, okay, you have 10 alleles, and they're all at equal frequency. Okay, no, what's your chance of sharing one randomly with a non-relative? But everyone's one related, it's a question of one related, thing. right? Okay, yeah. So, so your chance that somebody that's not related to you shares your allele as one-tenth. Now then, then you add that three times to the third power. Okay, mm -hmm. if, you do t if you do three, they're unlinked. So then it's a very low probability that if you share all these three alleles with another, that they're going to be a non-relative. No, they're all related. It's a question of how far away the relative is. I mean, we can come back to it often, but there's some disconnect as far as both definitions and numbers. Yeah, I would suggest in the interest well, of time we take the related so, discussion yeah. off. So in this case, it's usually going to be clonate because it's these things reproduce clonally. It's just simple logic. I mean, you know, spore lands somewhere, reproduces clonally. You've got whole clones right there. Those. Now, you can do relatedness, and this is what they did in another study, where you're looking at, okay, occasionally they do come in contact with siblings, but you can also assess that with the microsatellite. There's some beautiful experiments going on in the slide. I'd love to hear yeah, about yeah, them. Yeah, I think, I think we should go. Uh, yeah. Should move on. Let's keep going. All right, so we have three causes of uh, elevated relatedness, sparse occurrence of spores as they, uh, different, as they occur across the plate in, and then proliferate. We show the stuff that you've worked on and that's been talked about before with uh, drift uh, can cause uh, increased relatedness as they grow out from the center. And then finally, we do also know something about uh, genes for kin recognition. So in this case, relatedness is high. It's not as high as it would be if they'd gone through a single cell bottleneck as most multicellular organisms go through. So, you know, Dicti is as old as animals, but this might be why uh, morphological innovation is constrained, because there's still also conflict going on. Um, so I've been focusing on relatedness, because it's a really easily measurable thing. Um, 
but one of the advantages to working on a microorganism is that you can do experimental evolution type things. So here is some work um, again by Jenny. This uh, fruiting body has two colors in it, blue and red. And in this case, the red is uh, predominating in the spores and has largely avoided contributing to the stock. So um, we can ask the question if low relatedness will select for increased cheating. And we do this with an experimental evolution experiment where we start with a single cell, which we let proliferate to a million. And we simply plate it out from one plate to the next, each time gathering a million cells. And then we compete them against the ancestor. And uh, in this case, the ancestor is uh, is, is labeled and we can see the percent change. So if it's a drop, that means that the, the evolved line has uh, taken over and we found that it had in 18 out of the 24 lines. Cheating so, in fruiting bodies against yeah. the ancestor. And so cheating means there were more of them than of the ancestral line in the spore? Yeah, when you start out 50-50. The spore will still form um, when, there's, when, when you get to 100 percent of those, or are they not um, capable of making the stalks, or they won't yeah. make the stalks? So we've looked at a lot of different kinds of these cheaters. In this particular experiment, we found so each of those yellow bars really represents a evolved population, um, and we did find that some of them had completely lost the ability to form fruiting bodies, which is pretty uh, spectacular given we only did 30 rounds. And this figure shows the percentage of uh, clones from a, a given line that had uh, completely lost the ability. So, sorry, but when you start with, what do, we, what do you start with? Are there cheaters to begin with? One cell. I said one cell. One we started. Cell. No, one cell. So, one cell. One cell. So we're seeing oh, the the yes. cheaters. So the, the, the low relatedness is at new mutations to the others. So we started with one cell and so evolved cheating. Some insight into what some, the issues some people are having with yeah. relatedness. So we start out, in a sense, we start out with very high relatedness, right? Because yeah, it's all it's one, one cell. cell yeah. And any new mutation that arises gets well mixed with everybody else. And that's the relatedness of interest to us. How do you well mix it? We take a million cells each time and plate them out so there's no oh, opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Like make them all mixed on the new plate. Right. Like that. Because they're not made. No. Yeah. So, so can I think of this as mutation accumulation? No. It, it is based on new mutations, but it's not. Mutation accumulation experiments try to remove all forms of selection, and I'll get to that. But here, for, for, for example, if there is not a fruiting body form, is it just a mound, but then everything is transferred we, to a new plate? We, we, we transfer spores. So sorry, I went through this too quickly. So we start out with a million cells. We did 24 replicates. We, played, we then picked them up, counted, put down another million spores. So any New mu 
So in nature, a new mutation will probably be in a largely clonal situation, and if it's lost the ability to form a fruiting body, it'll suffer. In this case, it won't. So um, what we found is that there's a lot of cases where they've become social parasites, completely unable to do it on their own. Now, Owen mentioned that he'd counted thousands of wild spores and never found a single um, one of these social parasites. So how many different types don't you find? I mean, is it just red and blue, or how many different? The red and blue, so the red and blue simply means uh, in that line, the blue ones are the ones that can still make fruiting bodies, and the red are those that can't when they're done clonally. As far as exactly how many mutations and what their nature is, uh, we're still working on the sequencing. Do they have to form uh, fruit bodies, and is it just advantageous under the selection? Selective we only picked up spores. If you don't form a fruiting body, you're not making spores, and we wouldn't have picked you up. So here's a graph where you have the rounds from 10 to 30, and the spores collected. So this is line 9. So if you look back here, you can see line 9. Uh, had a sort of small number of non-fruiters when at the end we plated them out clonally so we could simply count them. So after a while you wouldn't be able to pick up anything because no one would be making any more fruiting bodies? And the line would go extinct, yeah. So, so you can see here that line 9 is in pretty serious trouble. So if it had if it had been in nature in a clonal or largely clonal situation, it would have been wiped out. But since we were always picking up a million cells, it was able to ride along on the others. Is there any chance? I, I know I read about the Mixococcus studies of Greg Bellisser, uh, that he was finding a new, like a new road to, to sociality after a while when, when these things were almost extinct. Have you seen anything like that, where there's like a reverse? This is the Phoenix mutation. Yeah, yeah, we haven't really looked at that. And that, that is a much more complex system where here we, in Dicti we have a stock that's a clear advantageous structure in Myxococcus in the fruiting bodies. You know, 99% of the cells can die. It's unclear as to exactly what's going on there. But there is no selection in this experiment, right? So we're not, imposing, we're not imposing selection. They're allowed to be selected. Yeah, there's tons of selection. Any cheater that comes along that avoids stock to get in the spore will be favored. No, so. that's exactly what I mean. You're not imposing selection. They may or may not, but, but I mean, apparently the, the, the lines go extinct, so that kind of there is no imposed selection, and they do whatever they and uh, that smell or whatever the, the mechanism is, but the fitness drops or whatever the ability to reproduce. Yeah, so you can contrast this to a mutation ex accumulation experiment, which we did through 70 social generations. In this case, we never allowed them to fruit. We simply picked up a clonal isolate in uh, uh, 90, populations and then transferred it. So this is reducing selection down as much as possible. They never had to fruit. 
and in this case we did not lose fruiting in a single line whereas with the social selection we did so um, anyway I think we can end it here Yeah, so we, so we made it very low relatedness rather than high, and we showed it had the impact we predicted, yeah. But mm -hmm. so, so, so presumably if they were dispersed as spores uh, and uh, you know, did not uh, overlap, again, on the scale of that uh, you know, fraction of a millimeter right. colony size, then selection would... Uh, uh, properly operate against the cheaters and uh, again you would get yeah, but I mean, there are there are cheaters that are able to make perfectly good stocks, and we've we've pulled up hundreds of those also. So so. Sorry, what way are they cheaters? What is the definition of a cheater? Uh, that if you mix two clones, um, well, definition of a cheater is not a simple question, but uh, the at the basic level, if you mix two clones, fifty fifty and one ends up making most of the stock, then we would call that um, a victim. If, if one is able to not contribute to stock, let someone else make all the, make, make the stock, and, and so that's what we Why call it. Why isn't higher competitive fitness the other Because it's a social process in a, there's a social relationship. If it's straight competition, you don't have a complex Cooperative social adaptation. Did you find a genetic correlate with, uh, with the cheaters or not yet? We found lots of genes that will cause cheating when knocked out. So if it's so bad so quickly, then why do you find the 0 0.96 relatedness in, in nature? Why is there in, in, in nature a fruiting body that has more than one? Why shouldn't that be wiped out by? selection where one of the types just gets to, you know, the, do you see there's advantages to larger size and it could be that in nature the trade-off, you know, there's, there's also mechanisms we know that keep, keep things fair, so we do know something about that, but it could be that um, if you're in an area where there aren't very many other clones, you're better off fusing with non-relatives and making a bigger slug that can crawl farther or, or something like that. And even with the kinds of cheating that we see, it's rare that you get nobody in the spores. So um, if there's a selective advantage to having a stock at all, it may be advantageous to um, forming chimeras under some circumstances. So can you take any of the ones in the wild where you find the chimeras and see if they preferentially still form chimeras in the lab even if they, I don't know, is there, have you looked at, at actual chimeras <coughs> that are common in the wild to, to see what happens, what kind of stocks they form in the lab when you take their spores and then they, what kind of fruiting bodies they make? What do you mean by what kind? They're just typical. The chimeras you find in the field are just cells that happen to be too 
close to each other, I think. You know, cells from different clones that happen to be close to each other and they co-aggregate together. Except for they do have these, you know, recognition mechanisms, so they do source. We did, we did a study where we took funds that were from the microscale, and this is mixed.